Hello and welcome to Two Hearts, a new Who podcast. I'm James. And I'm Callum. And we're bloody queens, mate. Basically, we rule. Every week, every fortnight, here on Two Arts... No, can't do the voice anymore. We take a look at another episode from the Doctor Who revival. And on today's episode, <laughs> it is Starships and Whales Galore in the second episode of Series 5, The Beast Below. Just the top of the episode, as we always do, quick reminder that you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Two Hearts Pod, the number two. And you can email us at twoheartspodcast at gmail.com. That's two, the word two, to have your thoughts and feelings shared on the show James stick an mm-hmm. episode of Matt Smith era How, what 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 what's changed hmm. <laughs> I feel like I used to be much better about like life banter on this show mm. and then at some point you and I completely forgot how to talk about ourselves yeah I, I know exactly what you mean it's like it's like actually it's like when the minute we talk about it on the show it becomes real mm-hmm. and I don't like that yes sometimes some things are less for me you know some things are just for Some me. Some things are left for us. Agreed. Agreed. Um, I guess for anyone who follows my my writing career out there, um, I have moved on from Power Up. So, you know, flowers for Power Up. Good stuff. Good <laughs> stuff. Um, but you can now find my work back on uh, Well Played. So I'll be, I'll be writing for them from now on, which is very exciting. Uh, at the time of recording, I've just had a review go live for Phobia, St. Defina Hotel. It wasn't very good. <laughs> How about you, Callum? <laughs> well, don't bother reading the review, guys, because there you go. Two words. Um, no, the review was great. The game wasn't great. <laughs> the game wasn't great. Um, well, no, look, still working. Still here. <laughs> haven't haven't gone anywhere. <laughs> Nothing's changed. Um, we went to see... What did we see the other day that was awful? Jurassic World? Uh, oh, yes. We walked out of Jurassic World Dominion around the half hour mark. Uh, we, we decided to pick ourselves up and um, simply remove ourselves from that situation. Um, don't see it. Yeah, Bad. Bad movie. We decided that life was worth living. <laughs> and <so> exactly. <laughs> we went and lived it and went to the pub. Got a drink. Exactly. It was great. It was the best, best choice we made <laughs> that entire day. Truly. Uh now, as far as I can tell, there isn't a huge amount of Doctor Who news to talk about this week. No, not really. There was an interview with Russell T Davies where he talked a bit about the show and and what and what they've got coming up uh, in twenty twenty three. But he sort of put the kibosh on it, and he was like, you know, we're not going to talk about it anymore until Chris Chibnall's centenary special, which is apparently coming. <laughs> it's going to yes. air. That's all we know. Um, yeah. No name, no trailer, no nothing. No nothing. Uh, and there hasn't really been... I mean, there have been the odd, like, odd spoilery things I've seen on Twitter, but nothing that's been substantiated by, like, filming in a while. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm seeing more stuff on my Twitter feed about the Barbie filming than anything else, so... Yeah, it's odd. I think the fact that they are showing off so much of that film just being like filmed out in the open like that leads me to believe that this is a total misdirect. Um, I, I can't envision Greta Gerwig doing a straight up Barbie film like this. Mm. Um, so I, I guess we'll find out. Yeah, we will. I'm, I'm, I'm equally excited for Barbie, Doctor Who. Barbie, get down from that table. <laughs> well, well, Dharma, you're such a free spirit. <laughs> <laughs> no, but there isn't really a lot of Doctor Who news. So that bodes well for us because that means we can get straight into <gasps> the beast below. Oh, you're going to... you got a zero. You can't ride a Vator with a zero. <laughs> you can't. The peep... The, the, the faces. Johnny. <laughs> Episode two of series five of Doctor Who is called, as we said, The Beast Below. It was written by Stephen Moffat and directed by Andrew Gunn. Great. All right. All right. Uh, your time starts now. All right, so it's Amy's first trip in the TARDIS. She go, the Doctor takes her to the future where they go to Starship UK, which is this big starship called UK. And uh, it's floating through space, uh, having escaped an uh, Earth ravaged by solar flares. Um, the, the ship is not vibrating and the Doctor is pretty concerned about that. And so he goes down to the engine room and he finds that there's nothing in the engine room. Meanwhile, Amy follows a crying girl, which everyone seems to be ignoring. And also there are like smiling people in booths and... 
30 seconds. Oh, thanks. And <laughs> there's uh, there's a hole in the road. There's a gentle, ah, and Amy goes to vote, but then she's made to forget what she voted for. And it's something to do with the dark secret at the heart of Starship UK. The Doctor and Amy go ejected into a, like a, a, a big mouth. Um, and then they get saved by a woman named Liz Ten, which is Elizabeth the Tent. Ten seconds. And they go to the Tower of London. It turns out the ship's on the back of a giant star whale and the Doctor and Amy realizes it's the Doctor. It's a metaphor for the Doctor. Big metaphor. And that is time. Well, that was um, not sixty seconds. That was a hundred percent sixty seconds. Oh, that was Goes tough. By real quick. Mm-hmm. That was mm-hmm. really tough. Although it does yeah, help you was, realize, um, like, like it does help you get to the heart of something. <laughs> like it does. Big yes. metaphor. Space whale. You know, big metaphor. Amy. Great. <laughs> there you go, folks. I. You know what? That was fun. But please, please. If you haven't seen the episode, do yourself a favor and go and watch it before you <laughs> listen to this podcast. I cannot envision a world in which anybody <laughs> listening to our podcast hasn't seen these episodes before. We are pretty explicitly a rewatch podcast. But this one in particular, I, obviously I understand that, yes, but this one is dense. We have, this is a dense plot story, so... It is. It would it bode is. Well. And I guess that's probably a pretty good place to start with The Beast Below, which I think is great. I, I love this episode of, of Doctor Who. Um, it is overstuffed. Uh, and so because of that, the pacing is definitely a bit wobbly. But I love every individual sort of thing that happens in this episode. Mm. Um, I think it's an incredible first adventure for Amy and the Doctor. Um, and it's just, I don't know, it, it's it's very Moffat. It, it's, got a, it's got a very nice Moffat-y fairy tale, but grungy kind of sheen to all of it. What do you think? Oh, I'm in a complete agreement with you. And um, I thought just before I give my thoughts on the episode, I'd just give a little bit of sort of backstory to the episodes. I've been, I've been enjoying um, reading the Brief History of Time blog, which goes into the production and sort of like inspiration for Doctor Who episodes. Um, I mm-hmm. actually can't remember that. I think it's Shannon Sullivan could be very wrong and i will corroborate and check that after this podcast is finished recording to make sure i'm not saying the wrong thing anyway um and they noted uh in their synopsis for or the recap of this episode that um something i didn't see on first watch but that moffat wanted this episode to give amy the opportunity to save the day so she has a big a more of a role in this episode um and sort of establish herself as a worthy occupant of the TARDIS. And he was also really, obviously, this season is keen to emphasise the fairy tale nature of Doctor Who. Um, and this is probably the episode that most embodies that ethos in its world. Because, like, the best way to understand this story is, as often the best Doctor Who stories are, is to, like is, is as metaphor. Um, mm-hmm. And we are... This is an episode that really values from an in-depth... Um, sorry, benefits from an in-depth dissection of it. Um, Even though what it has to say is pretty well on the surface, it's still really interesting. Um, I think this is one of... I think this is like Moffat's most political episodes. And it got me thinking about like this episode because I remember when it went out and um, at the time and there was a lot of pushback against it for reasons which we'll get into in this podcast... um, and I don't think Moffat's ever attempted an episode like this since. I, I struggled to think of one that was like this. Uh, yeah. Did he write the Zygon Invasion Inversion two-part? Well, it was under his watch, but no, he didn't write it. It was Peter Harness Got who it. wrote that okay. one. Yeah. Um, Understood. But yeah, like him actually writing a political script, I, like he has elements of politics, but mm-hmm. never this I don't I can't think of a story post this that where he's actually like building it around a critique of society. Um yeah, I'd agree with that. He tends to go for much more of the the human angle of a political situation because, like, I think his scripts do have a lot of, like you said, imagery of, of politics in there and he, he definitely dabbles, but he is much more focused on the um the the person yeah, you know, inside of that political system yeah. than the the system itself. Um, bearing in mind, of course, he also wrote an episode called "Let's Kill Hitler." So, um. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look, and that could have been, but wasn't what no, this episode it really is, was not. <laughs> is doing. Um, yeah, you're right. From this point on, he's very he's very much sort of focused on the characters and the character arcs of his main four uh, characters for this era, the Matt Smith era. Um, 
And so it's it's it actually made me a little bit sad to think that he never attempted an episode like this because it's so good. And I think that the criticisms of it, it are is. fair, but they 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 don't diminish my enjoyment of this episode one jot. To be honest, can you sort of walk me through some of those criticisms? Because hmm. like normally with with a Doctor Who episode, you know, I come into it with my own criticisms already locked and loaded, and so for me to walk away from this viewing and be like, oh, no, I thought that was pretty fantastic, other than a few like you know wobbly execution moments. Um, like, are there any like actual in depth criticisms I need to be aware of? Or no, not in depth criticisms. I guess I'm talking more in the popular sphere, it's popular sense. And when this okay. episode yeah. went out, it was uh, sort of lambasted as being messy and ill thought out mm-hmm. um and overstuffed and these are criticisms which we have brought up you and i james before we have done this podcast um and mm. and i think this episode does suffer from <clears throat> having too many ideas but i would yeah. never yeah but i think all of those ideas are really interesting as well mm. um so yeah, yeah I think- absolutely. I'd much rather it attempt those things rather than not. Um, and you know, like yes, the end result I think is a little bit messy, but and I think this might be sort of the thesis of our Moffat time on our show is that messy is worth the trade off for the highs that you get with it with him. Mm. Um, and so I'm I'm always happy to see him take a swing like this rather than not because um, especially as something like a parallel to. Um, what was Rose's second episode? The End of the World? Is that what well, it was called? End of the World, yeah. And that was a great episode. Yeah. A fantastic episode. Very laser focused though. And there's a lot of parallels to this episode in, I mean, imagery, concept, placement in the series, blah, blah, blah. Um, but, you know, on the opposite end of the spectrum now, we've got this like big, broad uh, thing that's trading on like, uh, what, totalitarianism, mm. um, the apathy of citizens under those systems star wars references uh <laughs> the queen running around in a in a opera mask like there's there's so much going on mm. um but i yeah i'm just really glad it exists me too and i think i'm just trying to think about what was happening at the time in 20, 2010 and what people were probably reacting to which is i think a criticism that comes up again with this series was that this is an example of ideas and style over characters and where Moffat mm-hmm. was really good at putting companions front and center. Um, Moffat does that too. And he's doing it in this episode, but it's, it's in a different way. And it's in, it's in conversation with the doctor. Yes. And I think Russell agree. did that too, think- but it, it, they were two distinct characters. Whereas Amy and the doctor really, their stories depend on one another much more. Yeah. I'd agree with that. Mm. I also, I also think like, Occasionally with Moffat, it's odd because sometimes his characters will be people and then other times they will be Mm. talking heads for his ideas. Mm. Um, And I don't dislike that approach. I can can fully understand why somebody wouldn't enjoy that, especially coming off of RTD who, you know, for better or worse, they are those people first and foremost. Um, And... I, yeah, like I said, I, I, I respect liking that. Um, but I think what is interesting about this episode is that you go from um, the 11th hour, which has Amy and the Doctor and, and Rory as well, <clears throat> being very much those people. Like they are just figuring out who they are as, as human beings in a heightened situation. And then you get to this episode and, you know, Amy's big speech to the Doctor at the end about, you know, how she sort of sees him is, I think premature in their time together from a just a basic human interaction level but for the vacuum in which this episode exists for the script that this is to have her be that version of that companion with this version of the doctor Mm. um i think works for the ideas and the metaphor like you said at the beginning that he's going for here um so i think it, it can simultaneously be emotionally successful while perhaps triggering for people um a, a sort of you know maybe more like mechanical uh, dissatisfaction. Does that make sense? It does. And with regards to that final speech as well, it's it's probably a case of like, if you take it at face value and don't question what's happening in, in it around it, like that's just an example of like, Amy is just a character that gets the doctor, you know? Mm-hmm. Like there doesn't need yeah. to be... It, it. Of course, we as audience members, having gone through four seasons, this already feel that yes, that does come too soon. Um, mm-hmm. But... 
I think the thing I have to keep remembering is like this is intended to be a brand new fresh start for the show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. People they're intending it that you know you'd have no idea what Doctor was about that before this episode you don't even know that he can go into space kind of thing. Yeah. Obviously they do. Right. Um but uh, yeah just try to I try to view this episode with more of a fresh perspective on things um yeah no i get that it's, it's like i just said like you know having her operate as a a talking head for an introduction to the doctor in at this point in this new series with a new showrunner you know I, you, can, you can kind of forgive her especially yeah. because everyone in this episode just like sells the fuck out of the emotion of these moments as well mm. um you know that that really helps uh but obviously that that speech comes a little bit later in the episode and we're we're, we're gonna jump around a fair bit with this one because there's just so much to talk about um but i guess like you you know, surface level thoughts, takes, like, what jumps out of you about this one? I think it's just a fantastically realised world. And it's it's not mm. often that Doctor Who does <clears throat> sort of a... I mean, Doctor Who, obviously, it goes to different planets, different times. It, it really does make an effort to place you in scene. Um, but it's rare that Doctor Who does mm-hmm. a, um, a sort of dystopic world that's... Well, okay, no, it does dystopias often, but mm-hmm. rarely are they, like, the focus. They're often the backdrop for something else. Um, yeah. Like a alien invasion or something. Like- <laughs> no, I I agree. Like, the, the world itself being a massive character here, I think, is, is you know, great. Mm. Um, and because it is... Um, I think you, you've got this in your notes somewhere, perhaps, but, like, the... Um, the way that Moffat said that he wanted to put it into like a like vaguely distorted and slightly sinister version of the real world, mm. um, and that I, I you definitely do feel that here because because of the aesthetic approach that they've gone with with um, this particular version of the future, it's got that kind of like vague retro futurism thing going on as well, where you know it's all very tactile buttons and old looking British technology just combined with the fact that they are on a floating thing, you know, flying through space, right? Um, and that that contrast, I I think, is very effective for um, exploring the kind of like totalitarianism, uh, you know, weird government shadiness that's going on in the background. Um, I think the only time that doesn't work for me is when you get like the you know, like the hooded robe people. I think that that is definitely a bit much. Um, like I don't need fantasy elements in this one as well, uh, which we will probably get to with Liz as well. Um, but things like the uh the old carnival heads being representative of like the the eyes and ears of the government to the populace is just such a it's just it's quirky (laughs) but in like a fun way Mm, it's totally quirky and then that's a good point actually about this um and this is part of the sort of criticism of this episode being quite overstuffed is we don't actually learn the names of the those circus uh, mask people or the the hooded Mm. creatures but they're uh, the, the the people the hooded people are apparently called winders and the things in the booths okay. are called smilers and they do call them smilers at one point but you never oh, yeah. learn how they knew to call them smilers <laughs> like that must have been cut somewhere in the editing of the episode um yeah right so like yeah it, it, it's over it's really stuffed it's lots of stuff in there but the smilers are called smilers and the winders are called winders and that's what we're going to use from them from this point on <laughs> Um, well, I'll try. try. I might just keep calling them turning head face men. That, that's so much better. <laughs> that's really cool. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it just flows off the tip of the tongue. But I really like your point that the winders... Yes, you're absolutely right. They could... It's odd that they... Now that I'm thinking about it, they could have been far more integrated into the overall aesthetic of that world, right? Like, they could have been... They could have actually been police, mm-hmm. for instance. Like a, an um, old-fashioned yes. and, and I do wonder if maybe that's too dark um, for what he was going for here because like or two on the there's already a fair bit of well yeah exactly it's already quite sinister as a world that he that he's built here um, so you know like the the vibe of the police state is is already quite heavy and so I do wonder if maybe adding on top of that like literal weapon wielding cops is is you know maybe a bit much for this kid's show oh version no they of, would just story, carry like you know? um they just carry cudgels and walk around being like, hello, hello, hello. What's going on here? <laughs> What's all this? I heard you didn't want to smile anymore. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, that is very, very true. And, and the look and, and feel of the world. What's the word you use? Retro. 
It's like retrofuturism, I think, is the idea where it's like, it's obviously future tech, but it's borrowed from things from the past. I think uh, Bioshock does this mm. a little bit, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, although Bioshock is obviously set in the past. It's just like a different, you know what I'm saying, like right? Like Steam. everyone knows, it's like... Yeah, exactly. And like, you know, things like um, the aesthetic of the the Alien films where it's like everything's very tactile and yeah. physical. It just happens to be, you know, what's displayed on the screen is this like, you know, crazy advanced um, technology. So mm. um, it's, it's just a nice pairing for what I always envision as like Britain's police state, I guess, <laughs> um, which is something I feel like I've seen fictionalized quite a few times. And, you know, it, it's a very common Western fear, I think, to to live in this kind of society that is, uh, you know, simultaneously grinding people under its boot heel and presenting it as this kind of like, oh, well, everything's fine. And, you know, big smiles and don't, don't talk about this in public kind of thing. Right. And, and very much couched in terms of like, we're doing this for your benefit. We're doing this like mm-hmm. to make you comfortable and you're complicit in this just as much as we are kind of thing, which I, re- I, I yeah. really, the, the scene with the voting booth. So mm-hmm. I think maybe, okay. I'll provide a little bit of just tiny bit of context about like the world of this story, which is that it's set on a big colony ship of the U- United Kingdom. And the, the ship is built on the back of a star whale. And they've the denizens of the United Kingdom have kidnapped and are torturing it to to save themselves, basically. And the whole society is structured around um, making people aware of this at these voting booths, uh, where they can choose to like protest against what's being done to the Star Whale, or they can choose to forget. And everyone forgets because the truth is so horrific. Um, mm. And the scene with Amy and that little video before it, like. If they, if they took out the "May God have mercy on our souls" line, I think it would be just like <laughs> a perfect little scene because it, it, it's just it's it's really it's just really cool the way that this episode interrogates um, personal complicity personal complicity in like the horrors of society, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and agreed. There's the line when the Doctor and Amy go into the overspill pipe after they've been in the whale's mouth and the doctor's like, here's the stick. And there's so, yeah, no, here's the carrot. There's the stick and the, the carrot being, yeah. you know, you can forget about everything you've learned here or we're going to beat you basically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I also think there's um a, a certain level of, uh, and, and look, this might be a bit of a stretch in terms of just, it, but I, I think of this as more of like a, a, a visual touchstone, but like I almost get like a, um, uh, Clockwork Orange like vibe from the voting booth situation where you get thrust into this like uh, you know kind of hostile and and almost clinical little like room and you get like a, an initial message from a government official being like hey look here's the situation we're about to show you the truth and how you feel about this afterwards is up to you and then you know it, it's presented as like almost like a um you know, like an overwhelming slideshow of like human atrocities gets like thrust onto this individual person. And then before they've even realized what they've done, they've already hit the uh, forget button, Such right? Like it, it, yeah. And it, it feels genuinely horrifying. And Amy's reaction to it being like, wait, what, why would I, why would I choose that? Um, mm. Is uh, it's, it's very human. And the way it's presented to you, um, I think a clockwork orange comes to mind just because again, that's another one of those um, sort of like visual film languages that I think about when I think about how the UK handles this kind of uh, uh, treatment of its citizens, mm. let's say in, in these dystopian stories, you know? Oh, absolutely. And it's, you've just reminded me <clears throat> of the, like the, that scene in particular where Amy's made to forget what she's learnt, or she chooses to forget what she's learnt because it's so horrific, mm-hmm. um, and then proceeds from that point on through the episode to be like, I don't understand. I voted for this. Like, I don't. I don't remember doing it. Like, how am I? Um, mm-hmm. How am I responsible for that? And this is part of the wider season theme, right? Of Amy's memory. True. Where very true. Yep. She is made to forget things. She f- because of time um and i I, i'm just now realizing like just how clever this whole series is is like of setting up (laughs) these concepts in in micro ways before 
expand yeah. them later on. It's a really, it's really fucking clever. I, I gotta give Moffat it due is. credit. Like he's he's the season is so tight. <laughs> yes, it it is. He has a he has a very particular vision with with Amy, and um, you know, feel free to dislike it, but the execution is is there in in our opinion. Well, so far at least. So know, far, obviously, we got a, we got a bit of a way to go. Um, yeah, the speaking of Amy, I, I guess this is actually a, a pretty good place to jump onto her. Um, I love that the episode starts with her with that like iconic shot of her like floating outside of the TARDIS with him holding onto her ankle, mm. and her hair is all floating everywhere. And you get the voiceover like, "Oh, my name's Amy Pond, and I've got a magic man in a box." And it's like, it's for, for such a dark episode that follows, it, you know, despite its its conclusion, which is actually very weirdly hopeful let's say um you know to start the episode off with such an outright sentimental and sweet moment for those two characters mm-hmm. um i i i just love it i i do too i think it's um it definitely plays into the peter pan wendy stuff i was talking about last week mm-hmm. um yeah the fact that she's spent- i mean she's literally in her pajamas you know <laughs> exactly she's been whisked away at night um to you know travel the universe it's just there's a kind of beauty there that you know i think that russell t davies in opposition and not to say that one approach is better than the other they're just different um always went for this sort of more urban realistic this is what it would be Mm -hmm. like if you were plucked off the street this is going for the more fairy tale storybook like let's let's make something that's timeless almost Mm -hmm. um i love amy (laughs) I really love Amy. She's great. And she yeah. is a different character when Rory comes on screen. And I just, I, f- I forget how much I just love the two of them on their own. I, I do also think that that is kind of a, um, you know, in some ways, not in every way, but in some ways, I think Moffat has a great understanding of sexuality and romantic dynamics because, you know, we all know that person who is just kind of a different person when their significant other isn't around. And so I think giving us the opportunity to spend this time with Amy and then seeing how she changes once she is paired up with with Rory sort of in future seasons, I think is a interesting contrast rather than a conflicting contrast, if that makes sense. Totally. Um, and and it, the, the change, she doesn't change dramatically. It's more like it's it's really just felt on a sort of molecular level as an audience member where like, you're like, I like these two people mm-hmm. together. I want to see more of them together. They click. Yeah. There's a great, sorry, just now I'm just thinking about it. There's a great uh, bit at the top of the episode where you just know that they're like already been, or they're already, they feel like old friends already. Um, when yeah. Amy's like in a mocking tone, what are you going to do? And he's like, what I always do. And <laughs> it's like, how can two people be so in sync already? Um, yeah, the the I mean it, it helps that obviously Karen Gillan and uh, Matt Smith have like incredible chemistry together. Mm. Um, I, I think you are like we're on the same level as um, Tennant and Billy Piper had together. It's just been deployed in such a different way. Um, whereas those two were like sexually charged, these two are just charged by like adventure itself. Um, yeah. And I, I think that's really lovely. Um, you get that amazing moment that oh, when I first watched this, I was like. This is why I love Moffat. When he pulls... Okay, so they land the TARDIS in this futuristic UK setting. um, And the Doctor is saying, like, we can never get involved. That's our purview as time travellers. Like, we just have to, like, stand and watch and let things happen, even if it's bad things. And then on the screen of the TARDIS, like, there's a little girl crying. And it just zooms in on just a tiny bit, pushes him out of the frame, focuses on Amy watching that screen. She's like, yeah, but, like, that must be super hard, right? Like, you can't just watch bad things happen and not do something about mm. it like w- what does that do to you and then a- as there's no answer from him you see him on the screen already talking to the little girl checking if she's okay <laughs> and it's just perfectly playful and indicative of exactly the dude that he is as the doctor it's like yeah don't do this thing i'm gonna go do this thing i, I loved it it's really yeah that's a really good moment and this episode has a lot of those moments of like almost like i call them mission statements of like Mm-hmm. These are these are definable things that are, define the Doctor, define what life in the TARDIS is like, and we're going to keep coming back to them. And one of them is that sense of the Doctor needing to take a um, needing to take a uh, um, time traveler's approach to you know not get involved. But of course he gets involved all the time, and he gets involved because he cares. 
um, mm-hmm. like these are just definable things or um, or what's the other one fuck oh well I mean the metaphor the big metaphor at the end of the episode of the doctor being this ancient time lord creature that is just looking to save people like no no yeah it, it it's here and it goes all the way to the end of Moffat's time right to the very end of Peter Capaldi's like Cybermen last two part of like no reward, no hope of survival, just being kind. Like it's, ah, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's so tight. <laughs> it is. And like Moffat's maturity obviously develops, uh, but I think that his heart is always in the same place with Doctor Who. Um, even, even if the trappings around it shift rapidly over, over their time, you know? Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I love Amy's dynamic with the little girl. Uh, like they don't get a huge amount of time together, but when they're like pimping around together and Amy's like, let's just break the rules. Like let's, let's, you know, break this lock open and just see what happens. Mm. Um, it's that, it's like I said to you last week, uh, or the last time when we talked about the 11th hour with Amy and the doctor, they, they almost feed off of each other's like childlike, um, uh, impulses yeah. and and so to to see her running around being like eh, what's the worst that could happen like eh, let's fuck it up um <laughs> <laughs> i i love that version of amy so much um and it's it's such a a nice it's it's strange because like she already does feel a lot more mature than rose did um yeah and i know that i'm just talking about her acting like a child but it feels like in a very different way to rose whereas rose was a child amy is ignoring the fact that she's an adult and that active choice to ignore it i think makes her just so fascinating to watch yeah you're very right you're very true to say that and um i want to agree with you but i think that the actress playing that little girl is appalling <laughs> Oh, I mean, like, she's not a very good actress, but, like, it's just a kid. I know. Don't be mean to children. <laughs> she's not a kid anymore, so I'm allowed to be mean to her now. <laughs> so, um, I, yeah, I, I think this is... I'll come back to some positives, but I think with that actor in particular, and it, it Moffat loves kids. He loves putting children, child actors into his episodes and his seasons, mm-hmm. and so sometimes they work. Like last week, Caitlin Blackwood as young Amy was incredibly charming. Um, sometimes <laughs> they don't. And this actress is going around looking like everything's annoying and simultaneously stunning her. And <laughs> I just find it really annoying. But I'm going to put that aside and say that, yes, you're right. Um, Amy's dynamic with that kid is good. And it only gets better with Clara. I think... Jenna Coleman's, mm-hmm. you know, affinity for children is is and child actors is pretty fucking special. Oh yeah, the way they made her a teacher is is just a stroke of genius and yeah. perfectly plays to who she is as a performer. But we'll get to Clara. Um, so another scene I really enjoy, and this is just an excuse for me to talk about Star Wars for a brief <laughs> moment. But um, they get flushed into oh. what you initially think is like a trash shoot, and it's got the same red lighting as the A New Hope trash compactor sequence. And I initially was like, oh, that's like a really cool, like nifty little Star Wars reference. And then he kind of, you know. Uh, like squares the Star Wars reference by the fact that it, they realize they're actually inside of something's stomach or inside of its mouth. And that is something, again, that happens in A New Hope uh, when they land the Millennium Falcon inside the meteorite and then they find out they're in a big worm stomach. Like, back. it's. Sorry? That happens in The Empire Strikes Back. I know, I said that. You said A New Hope. No, I said A New Hope first and then I said Empire You said Strikes A New back Hope again. That. You said it second. No. You did. No, I, no. Actually go back no. and listen to this recording afterwards and you'll see it. Well, I can't wait to be correct. <laughs> You're going to um, fucking edit it out and be like, that never happened. <laughs> never happened. Um, but yes, love that. And, and again, it is one of those things where like this episode is just running in so many different directions and it wants to be so many different things. It does have a very like childlike kind of like in kid in a candy store approach to its uh, sci-fi elements, let's say. Um, oh. And well, I mean like if you yeah, want to talk about it. star Wars references, there's the fucking star wipe, <laughs> not the star wipe, but, but there is the other, uh, the side wipe. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, the, it, it's, you're right. It, it is very much um, holding a uh, living by those uh, um, references, but then doctor whoing them. Um, and mm. I agree. I love the, I love the, 
even though it obviously, I, on every rewatch of this episode, I, I can see that it's not a tongue. Like, it's obviously a big plastic floor with some stuff on it. <laughs> um, I, I choose to suspend my disbelief with that because it is such a great idea. Um, and, you know, I think that anyone who has a problem with the Doctor and Amy being vomited up by a giant space whale just doesn't have a sense of fun. Because truly, <laughs> that is so much fun. Yeah. Like, this isn't going to be big on dignity. Incredible. Oh, my God. And the way they're both <laughs> screaming into the camera. Um, I know. It's just so goofy. It's, but in, like, the best way. And they have a great rapport in that scene as well. Like, the, um, mm-hmm. the you know, when the Doctor realises what's, you know, the Star Whale does its guttural blah. And then he's like, he realises what's happening. And he gets Amy and he's like, you want to get yourself in a calm area? Go, go om. <laughs> And he's like, we're in a tongue. <laughs> a tongue. Like, they're just... Oh, they're, they're perfectly great. matched. Um, they really are. Then we get to Liz 10. If, yeah, I was going to say, Liz 10... It, so, complicated on, on this one. I, I think that uh, of all the things that could have benefited from this being a two-parter or just being a bit longer, and it, however they could make that happen, uh, Liz 10 is, I think, definitely one of the elements that needed a bit more massaging mm. let's say um because you you've got your notes that like on paper she's great it's just in practice something's missing so there's a reveal as part of the twisting reveals at the end of the episode that liz 10 who is queen of england queen of the ship um but who is investigating what her government's doing behind her back she thinks she's been on the throne for 10 years but she's actually been on the throne for 300 years And the people in charge of the government have slowed her body clock. They're not big on science Mm. with Moffat era. Um, (laughs) Slowed her body clock so so she stays the same age and they keep wiping her memory every 10 years. Well, she chooses to wipe her memory every 10 years um, of the knowledge of what they've done to the Star Whale. Um, And so she thinks she's only been on the throne for 10 years. But it's kind of like that reveal adds nothing to her character or to this plot of this story. Um, and so it's just a bit of a twist for twist's sake um, and mm. a chance for Moffat to be a bit clever. And I think it, yeah. it is an example of like Liz 10 just being just like a bit much. She's a bit more than this episode needs. Um, yes. And I think that's kind of a top down problem as well. You know, we, I mentioned before, what were they? The, the wind up clock boys, the, 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 the things in the booths are called smilers. The people are called winders. Winders. The the winders, I said that, like, aesthetically, I don't think they fit into this. And Liz Ten is is very much of, of that same thing. Mm. She's got this, like, you know, flowing big red cape and the, the very dramatic kind of, like, uh, Venetian mask type situation going on and whatnot. And, like... You know, her, her initial uh, kind of moment where... Because there's, there's a moment where the Doctor, he gets to the station and, you know, to figure out that there's no engine rumbling, he has, like, a glass of water and puts it on the ground and there's no movement in the water, mm. right? And then you cut away to her being told, like, he did the thing with the glass. And then she walks out of her little, like, you know, gorgeously lit room and there's glasses of water everywhere. Mm. And it's one of those things that's, like... I mean, that's fun. It makes no sense, but it's fun. Um, and... It's sort of like from that point on, though, anytime she shows up with her little, like, you know, pew-pew gun and everything, um, I think she says, like, you're my only hope at she some does. point to the Doctor as well, like another Star Wars reference, yeah. yeah. Um, it just doesn't quite gel with the tone of the rest of the episode. Um, I think it would have benefited a lot more from, like you said, getting rid of the mystery entirely, just having it be like, I'm I'm the Queen, I've been reigning the entire time that this has been going on mm. because I needed to be here for my people. And then you can also play on the fact that, like, you can start hinting at the fact that she doesn't remember her entire reign if you want, mm. but um, the way it's presented is just, it's a bit too twisty-turny, uh, aesthetically doesn't quite fit to me. Um, it's a great performance. Um, like, I... Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. It is great performance. And um, the concept of her, like, losing or choosing to forget what she's learned every 10 years, you know, fits in with mm-hmm. what we know and, and as a metaphor of the royal family of, of, you know, being equally blind to their own privilege and the inequities in their society that they're supposed to govern. Like, these yeah, things it's work. It's like innocence by forced ignorance, basically. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And and kind of has his cake and eat, eats it too, I suppose, with that. Mm-hmm. But also, um, 
like I said, it adds nothing. And you, yeah, you're right. There's a, there's a, um, a version of this story where maybe, you know, like she's part of a long generation of, of Kings and Queens who, who have known what's happened and have done nothing. And, and equally she knows, but you know, forgets every 10 years, but to add that in the twist about her being 300 just feels weird. Mm-hmm. Just, it just, it just feels yes. weird. And I agree. And I extend that to her costume as well. I don't know why they put her in that cape and those weird boots. It's very 11th, it's very 13th doctor. <laughs> yes. I, I agree. I agree. It's very 13th um, doctor. Before her, she was even a thing. It's very much so. Um, which I guess leads us to the, like the, the, the heart of the issue uh with with this with the story is um the fact that you know we find out that uh space station uk is doesn't have engines and is in fact being carried by a tortured space whale mm-hmm. um the idea being that this space whale was uh, the last of its kind sought out earth during its uh its flop era let's say <laughs> um and then humanity decided to capture it and enslave it and build a ship on top of it and set off into the stars. Um, profoundly dark. Uh, and I think it does an okay job grappling with how dark it is mm. and how sad it is more so. Uh, but I do think just by having it be like, Oh, it, it chooses to help them in the end. You kind of, at, because it's Doctor Who, I kind of get it, but you do kind of sidestep a bit of the um, the actual hard questions about what the society has been doing. It is a neat solution to the episode, and a, I think a better example of like a Doctor Who twist being enabled that recontextualize everything this episode has been mm-hmm. saying. Like those are like you know, an ending where the Doctor you know shoots their sonic screwdriver and saves the day is is not satisfying. Um, so <coughs> Chibnall. F- um yes uh so for i really i really do vibe with that ending and um Mm -hmm. and i i do i really loved when amy the the sort of montage the quick montage of amy not only seeing how the doctor in her memory is with children but seeing how the doctor was with her as a kid which is something i Mm -hmm. missed on first watch um like that makes total sense to me that like, and even though it was only an episode to hark back to that moment just speaks to uh, what I hope is what they're trying to establish, which is like an extremely shared, extremely long and deep shared connection, which has happened because of time, literally time travel over a very short period of time mm-hmm. for the doctor for a very long period of time for Amy. Um, what am I saying here? I'm saying that I like it. I'm saying that it's good. I like it. I think it's good. Yeah. <laughs> and look, I, I agree. Like, I, I do thoroughly enjoy this. I think it is a very emotionally satisfying ending. And, you know, a lot of my defense, I guess, of this episode, although I don't really think this needs defending. I think this is a very good episode of Doctor Who. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, a, a lot of my praise for it has come from the space of like, yeah, but like if it emotionally works, it doesn't matter too much about the mechanisms of it. And I do stand by that. Um, but I also think that if you are going to do a story about, a, you know, this kind of like overarching, horrible government situation mm. um, to to end it with and then everything ends up a okay is yeah it not not it's not a cop out it's just a bit toothless um and for a family show sure whatever that's fine um i, I guess I'll, i i can learn to live with that um because the metaphor and the connection obviously that amy makes between uh the whale and and the doctor is just so nice that i i don't really care all that much after things come out in the wash you know yeah, I guess the question is, like, have they actually changed anything? Or, like, is, mm. the, is the Doctor leaving this society in a, in a better place? And arguably, yes, it is. But that would be to ignore the, like, the immense atrocities that that whole society has, like, inflicted upon this creature. And it's very, yeah. it's very sweet that it stayed, but it really is in its rights to murder them all. <laughs> like... 
yes, exactly. Like, if that thing broke apart and, and flew off and was like, fuck you, mm. like a whale would say. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I would get it, but it, it does work for the emotional core of the episode yeah. to ultimately have it decide to... It, I mean, it just wanted to help those kids, right? The, I think the whole idea is, yeah. you know, they're feeding people to it, but it doesn't eat the kids because, you know, it has like an empathetic connection with kids or fucking whatever. Um, it's very Moffat. <laughs> it's very Moffat. And it goes back to what we said at the top of this episode, which is don't think about this. And what you've just said, you know, don't think about this as a, as a realistically based story. Think about this as a metaphor. Mm-hmm. Think about this as a story. There is a deeper meaning to these things. And yes, the ending... Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe that wouldn't really happen in this, but also none of this would really happen because it's fucking bananas. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. Yeah. It's okay to just get lost in a, a, a fiction. Yeah. And, I, and I do wonder if maybe some of the difficulty I had doing that with RTD's era is because of the contrast in the way these two men have written the show, where Moffat is very upfront about the fact that it's a story. And, you know, the way Russell writes things, he's a, like you said, he's a very grounded writer. Mm. Um, even when it's dealing with more fantastical elements, he still tries to pull you back in a little bit. Um, and in doing so, I think he does open himself up to a little bit more criticism because it's like saying, well, like you asked me to pay attention on this level and now I feel unsatisfied on that level Mm. whereas Moffat never demands that of you he just says I'm gonna you need to feel things you don't need to think is not the right word but you know what I'm saying no and he definitely wants you to think because fuck the storylines go in the next season in particular they go oibly wobbly (laughs) um poor boy (laughs) but you're yeah I think what he's he's ultimately aiming at is like I'm here to entertain and I'm here Mm -hmm. and, and if you get something else from this episode in particular great but i hope that you've enjoyed this you know emotional through line which is very consistent through the whole episode um yeah and it's held together by amy it's held together by the doctor and by uh the whale and the society that they go into i mean i think that starship uk is definitely one of the better realized uh societies that doctor who has put on screen even if it's obviously Mm. a fucking warehouse and not a street (laughs) like when she's like there's a hole in the road i'm like this is a room. <laughs> this is not a road. Um, I agree. I agree. And we're going to get into this uh, in two weeks time when we talk about the interior of the Daleks Ugh. ship. But there, there is definitely, it's odd because the budget has clearly jumped, but in other ways it clearly hasn't. And it's very confusing series uh, visually in that sense. I... Um, but, you know, yeah, I would love to do a little thesis on like how the design work of this of Moffat's era like works because mm. uh yeah, like some like fuck me, that Dalek ship is balls. Oh, it is a it's a fridge. It's <laughs> like it, it's a walk-in fridge. It's like a, it's a fridge. And to go from Russell's this is what he did really good, that era of like grungy tangible ships where like things like mm-hmm. they were things worked to go to like clean surfaces it's an intent and we see it in the time of the angels as well with the ship Mm. in that two-parter like there's an intentional like we're going from a 50s retro futurism like you've said uh look here um Mm. but that opens up to a lot more criticism when you can see things more clearly yes it's in hd (laughs) my god um (laughs) um but yes look um yeah, good start. <laughs> it's a great start. And I, I, I'd love to sort of end our discussion talking about the the last bit that Amy and the, and the Doctor talk about, which is when Amy's like, they approach the TARDIS and she's like, um, I think the Doctor says something like, um, you know, big day tomorrow. And she's like, what? And he's like, well, they're all big days. I skipped the little ones. <laughs> and she's like, you know what I said about getting Amazing back for line, tomorrow morning? Have you ever run away from something because you were scared or just not ready? And he says, you know, once a long time ago, she says, what happened? And then he's like, hello, like, I happened. <laughs> this is, <laughs> that. that's what happened. I really do love that, you know, this is one of the things that connects doctors and companions, which is that the companion is looking for adventure, but also running away from something. And that was with mm-hmm. Rose, but it was a lot less sort of... Uh, what she was running away from was everything rather than one thing. Um, yeah. And with Martha and Donna, same sort of situation. Although Martha was definitely running away from her family. Um, and mm. I just, I just love that. Like 
as opposed to those characters who keep running and never learn like yeah we are going into some areas with amy and I'm, that's why I'm, I'm this is why i'm like mentioning this where we're going to see an arc with her we're going to see a definitive end point we're going to see her develop as a character and i am so fucking excited <laughs> for it mm-hmm. i completely agree uh the beast below what are you giving it it's probably an A, but I'm giving it a minus just for the Liz 10-ness of it all. Yeah, I agree. I think A, a minus is, is correct. Um, pacing issues, a uh, bit bloated, but mm. it's bloated with good ideas, so it doesn't matter too much. Totally. And I also want to say up front, yeah. I love Sophie Ocanito. I think she's a brilliant actress, and I think she mm. did exactly what Such she needed great to energy. with this episode. She just... Um, mm-hmm. Just what that thing was, wasn't what the episode needed. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Um, I I guess my my last note about this episode um, is the way that this ends with him getting a phone call oh. from Winston Churchill and then the silhouette of the Dalek rolling into the room. And it's not, it's not a scene from the next episode. It's just like a little, like a little, like... It's not even a trailer. It's just no. like a little vignette about what's coming next. And it's so silly i love it <laughs> it's very much like oh don't stop watching because next week the daleks are gonna come the daleks um, yeah and look if, if if anyone is gonna make me excited about the daleks it's gonna be moffat and i am excited for the next one i'm excited to talk about it <laughs> well <gasps> conflict on the horizon <laughs> here at two hearts no uh, thank you all for listening to our little podcast about the beast below today um and for this listening to us this fortnight and every fortnight uh if you'd like please do drop us a review on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you listen to the show as it helps us grow and it makes us feel really good um we do as we say every week we do love to hear your thoughts and questions uh and if you would like to reach out to us and have them read on the show you can do so by emailing us at twoheartspodcast at gmail.com. That's two, the word two. Or you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at twoheartspod. That's two, the number two. Uh, I've been Callum, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at theatricallum. And I have been James. You can find me on Twitter at OMGMoreJames. And we'll see you in a fortnight to talk about Victory of the Daleks. Until then. Ooh, exterminate. Mm. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. (laughs) No, that was a good ending. Let's just leave it there. (laughs) Great.